the Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. Joined now by a man who um, is sort of, I think, an honorary Irish man, thanks to a picture that he took of Ireland. Lots of people have taken pictures of Ireland. Not many of them have done it from space. He is, of course, uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield, astronaut, fighter pilot, now best-selling author, and the latest of his uh, books, the thriller The Defector, is just out. Good morning, Chris. Good early morning to you, Anton. I trust you're well. I am very well. By the way, what's the correct form in terms of protocol? Should I be calling you Colonel, Commander? What's appropriate? I was a Colonel in the Air Force. I commanded a spaceship and Chris is fine. So whatever you're comfortable with, if it's okay for me to call you Anton, I will. <laughs> yeah, I wish I, could re- I wish I could respond by saying I was a commander of a spaceship and I was a colonel in the Air Force, but I got nothing by comparison. The latest book is The Defector. It's set in the early uh, 1970s. It's about a uh, Russian pilot defecting with a MiG-25, which is interesting because it's very close to something that actually happened, isn't it? Well, most things are. And, um, and But the book, I think, gosh, maybe 95% of the book actually happened. But I've, I've taken a plot that uses real events or very close to real events and twists them around the unmovable uh, posts of things that were actually going on. And to me, that's what makes it really fun to read because you actually have to like guess what well gosh what in this isn't even real and i stuck an author's guide in the back just to help the leader reader so you don't have to go in there and and chat gpt to find out what's real and what isn't in the book but yes it uh, there was a defection of a mig-25 a couple years after where the book is set uh, by a guy named victor belenko who defected from south of Vladivostok uh, over to japan now, obviously, there is an awful lot in the book, um, things that people will like, like character and like plot twists and thrills and all the rest of it. But setting that to one side, it is an aerosexual's dream. Can we talk about the MiG-25 and why the defection was significant and the impact the MiG-25 had had before the defection? Because it changed not just uh, aviation, it changed American military a- aviation. Sure. So here's what happened. Um, the The Americans wanted to spy in the after the Second World War. They needed a high flying airplane, and they had the Lockheed Skunk Works develop the U two, and it flew. They thought higher than any missile. But then uh, Francis Gary Powers was shot down over the Soviet Union flying the U two because it was slow, and they realized uh, that that they needed something that could go fast. So they started building the SR seventy one, a high altitude, high speed thing. And the Soviets built a fighter that could shoot it down. They built the, the, the MIG, Mikoyan and Garovich company, MIG. The MIG uh, company built what they called the MIG-25, the highest and fastest fighter airplane ever built. And it, uh, it absolutely uh, terrified the West that, that the Soviets had built this airplane. And because the Soviets built the MIG-25, the Americans uh, built what became the F-15, the, the air superiority fighter that that uh, was so dominant in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So those, you know, typical human military behavior. But that sequence was really pivotal in history, and the MiG-25 was a big driver of it all. But what's interesting, and you have it in the book, is when the Americans finally got hold of a a MiG-25, it it was somewhat anticlimactic. They had built a myth that wasn't quite there. Well, a lot of myths are that way. And... um, uh, 
you know, it's like meeting your own heroes. You go, oh, this is just another person, in fact. But for the MiG-25, uh, it, it did go uh, three times the speed of sound. Um, and it did fly incredibly high for something that didn't have rockets on board. But uh, they took it up over 120,000 feet, which is far higher than anybody has flown a, uh, an air-breathing engine. So it did have tremendous capability, but it was no fighter. It couldn't turn. Uh, it couldn't pull very much G at all. And it carried only limited armament. And um, and the engines didn't last long. Big, powerful engines, but they burned themselves up very quickly. So it was a, it was very much an interceptor just to to get up to intercept the SR seventy ones. It was very purpose built, but just looking at it from a distance, uh, people drew a lot more formidable conclusions than the reality of the MiG twenty five. But nobody knew that until they actually got their hands on one, like what happened in uh, in my book, The Defector. Yeah, because you have this lovely scene in the defector, and I'm, I'm not giving away any spoilers because that's the it's it's what the start of the book hinges on. But you have this lovely scene where the guys are looking at the airframe for the first time and seeing evidently hand welding, seeing stainless steel where they were expecting titanium, seeing rivets poking out of the body. It it, it was fairly agricultural, given what they were <laughs> expecting. Yeah, I, I lived in Russia for five years. I was NASA's director of operations in Russia, and I flew a Russian rocket ship, a Soyuz, and, and learned to speak the language passably well. And so I got, uh, spent a lot of time over there. And one of the common sort of throwaway phrases is Ivan engineering. And it's a little bit derogatory. It's also a little bit prideful in that, uh, hey, we build stuff that works. And we don't make it over, overly fancy. It doesn't need a lot of bells and whistles. We want to build something that will work, especially it'll work in a place that is cold and has uh, limited maintenance. And and so uh, a lot of their stuff is very, <laughs> you described as agriculturally built. But uh, I grew up on a farm. I respect that. You, know, that. you need a tough, reliable machine. And uh, yeah, the MiG-25 on close inspection was a fairly brutish instrument, but also immensely capable. So tell me, Chris, for, for fighter pilots, is it a bit like, I, I know a, a lot of people who would have been um, racing drivers over the years, and usually there was a sort of a couple of seminal cars, often road cars when they were kids, that gave them a sort of a thirst for it, and then they got into um, racing. Is it the same with fighter pilots? Do you look at a, an SR-71 or a, an F-18 or a, a MiG-25 and say, that, that's what made me want to do this? Um, for, for definitely. When, when my brother and I were growing up, uh, suspended from the ceiling in our farmhouse were countless little assembled plastic models of airplanes. And most of them, uh, you just listed different types, but started with F, like F-15. That F stands for fighter. And so if you're going to be a fighter pilot, you want to fly something that starts with F. Um, but for people uh, my age, uh, obviously some of the classic early fighters like the Spitfire or the F-86 those were hugely influential. And now, yeah, people look at the F-15 or they look at the the, the Russian, we, we call them by the manufacturers. So the Su-27 uh, or the MiG-29, those, it's just, it's the ultimate capable flying machine. And when you go to the theater and you watch uh, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, you know, in his latest exploits as, as a top gun, He's flying an F-18 or an F-14, and I think uh, Tom Cruise and his his somewhat mythical version of flying those airplanes, I think that's really uh, kind of imagination capturing for a lot of young people like, wow, I would love to be able to fly a single-seat fighter that has that sort of capability, that extension of, 
of personal uh, three-dimensional freedom. And I know for me, look, and I've been lucky enough to fly the Spitfire now and fly the F-86. And, and for me, just the idea that we could build a machine that will let you fly more effortlessly than a bird, uh, to me, that was, was hugely motivational throughout all my years of training. Well, let me go back to what you said about meeting heroes and discovering that they tend to be mortal. Is the same true of mechanical heroes? Was the Spitfire a disappointment? No, no. The Spitfire, uh, I mean, it's got this enormous engine, the big Rolls-Royce Merlin 12-cylinder. You know, it's it's a liquid-cooled engine, which most people don't think about. But if you have to carry a great big radiator on the front of your engine, and it had great big, you know, uh, uh, horsepower accelerating things on top, like superchargers or two turbochargers, that type of thing on top. So this enormously powerful and capable engine, but then a beautiful, graceful airframe design so that it handles really predictably. You don't want an airplane. I mean, all airplanes are trying to kill you, but you don't want one that, that's doing it uh, maliciously. And some airplanes are downright malignant in the way that they fly. But the uh, Spitfire was beautiful. And the F-86, the first time I landed an F-86 Sabre, I, I did a beautiful squeak on landing, and I thought, wow. And then I, the next one, I did a beautiful, I thought, wow, I'm a pretty good pilot. And then the next landing, and then I realized, oh, this airplane lands itself. I'm not <laughs> special. Um, and, and the Spitfire, for something with that much capability, uh, it's just a, uh, so, you know, there's an expression that it, this airplanes fly as good as they look, and the Spitfire looks beautiful. Explain then one thing to me that I never understood, Chris. How do you square the attention to detail, the sort of systematic approach that must be necessary to be an astronaut and to be uh, both a fighter pilot and a test pilot as you were, with the excitement that originally drew you into it? Because I assume they don't just let you kick the tires, light the fires and have a bit of fun. No, I, I've been a student my whole life, pretty much. You know, I I, uh, I was an air cadet as a teenager. and First, I learned all the theory and the weather meteorology and all the all the stuff. And then they let me start on gliders originally and learn to fly without an engine, getting towed up on a cable, and then and then eventually basic powered airplanes. And you you have to qualify at every level. And if you actually want to fly the top end airplanes, then you need to be one of the top end pilots or they won't trust you to go do it because they're the most demanding cockpits. So yeah, it is a lifetime of of uh, threshold qualification and and kind of working to the next level. So if you didn't have that that burning, excited eight year old child desire to go do this thing, I don't know how you'd sustain it. You know, it's not just like I'm going to get my accounting uh, degree and then I'll be an accountant. It it is it is uh, life threatening, and it is competitive, and it's lifelong. And so you have to have a real burning fire that this is what you want to do. This is the person that you want to be. And that that applies for becoming a fighter pilot. And for then I became a test pilot and even more so in spades for uh, for becoming an astronaut. You think about it. I served 21 years as an astronaut. I flew in space for six months. So 20 and a half years of my adult life were just training and preparation for the for the six months of actually doing the job. Now, can you expand on that, Chris, because I don't mean this pejoratively, but the layman's sense that I always had was that you reached the sort of zenith of piloting capacity and that the reward was a trip to space. The way it's portrayed is a, is that the, the astronaut flying is not as technical or challenging an exercise in flight as the test pilot or fighter piloting. Is that wrong? 
yeah, it's wrong. Uh, the most complicated flying machine ever built was the space shuttle. Uh, it flew, it launched as a rocket ship, it flew as a space station, and it landed as an airplane. And, and, and it had 500 switches and circuit breakers in the cockpit. And you had to know intimately what every single one of them did and what a failure meant and, and, you know, and then what to do about it to, to keep from dying. And, and I commanded the International Space Station, which is the most complicated thing we've ever built uh, off the Earth or in, in orbit and, and uh, an immensely complicated machine, but also system of operation. And, uh, and so the life of a, an astronaut is a very little daring do. It's almost all study and preparation and simulation and practice and anticipation of things going wrong so that you have a, a, a better than average chance of not dying, but also being successful uh, during what you're asked to do. But it's a lot more fun, you know, to portray it as Buzz Lightyear. And, and <laughs> I, I, I like I like going to the movies as well, but uh, but you shouldn't conflate the two, really. Well, I was I was intrigued by that in how you write because there's a couple of scenes in the defector that get very Top Gun. I mean, you have the 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 defector himself fighting compressor stalls and and deliberately flaming out engines and all sorts of exciting stuff. Does it take a great force of will for you to say, okay, I'm going to park what I know I should be doing and write it exciting? Oh no! Don't get me wrong. Uh, flying uh, the world's highest performance vehicles is exciting. I mean, it's but but it is measured excitement. It, it is um, you have an enormous public trust. You, you, you know, you don't own it. You're not just up there uh, having fun. Uh, it is fun, and it's hugely challenging, and it and it it pushes you to the very limit. Um, and uh, it is as much fun as as I've had in my life to do some of the things I was asked to do as a fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut. Uh, imagine, you know, this morning, if you'd been lying in your bed, like I used to do for a living, and, and the horn went off, the klaxon sounded on the wall. I had, and you had to be airborne flying an F-18 in 12 minutes from the, from sound to sleep. 12 minutes later, your, your airplane is now flying underneath you and you're racing out to intercept uh, Soviet bombers that are invading a national airspace. I mean, it's really technical and really demanding, but it's also just incredibly exciting and exhilarating and has great portents. And and the the actual challenge of dogfighting with an airplane, of pushing the airplane to the edge of what it's capable and being the person that can do that, yeah, it's great fun, but but it's not just fun. I asked you about meeting your heroes in terms of mechanical heroes. Is there anything that you haven't flown that you would now still want to? Oh, yeah. I've only flown about 100 different types of airplanes. Oh, is that and, um, <laughs> and I, you know, you know what I would like to fly more than anything else, Anton, and that would be a lunar lander. That's what I would love to fly, uh, something that was landing on the moon. And uh, in, in writing the first book in the Apollo Murders series, uh, obviously, I did uh, enormous research into making sure I got all the details of the Apollo lunar lander right. But um, but yeah, we're we're in the process of sending people to the moon late next year, or early twenty twenty five, and and building. You know, people are landing on the moon with robots right now, so all that's going on. And I find it just as challenging and interesting and and exciting as I did when I when I was an eight year old dreaming about all this stuff. But uh, I, yeah, if, if, I, I'm happily happy to fly anything. But uh, but the more capable the machine, 
uh, the further it can take you towards your dreams, I think. Chris, thank you. Sorry. Colonel Hadfield, Commander Hadfield, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, Chris's new book is The Defector, and it is both a, a riveting book in terms of, of insights into aviation, but also insights into uh, geopolitics, because it's set at a very interesting time in the 70s when there was quite a fair bit of tension knocking around. Chris Hadfield, always a pleasure. My pleasure. Lovely to talk with you again, Anton. Be well. The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk.